Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we're joined by DM Pseudomuse. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Oh, glad to have you. I like to start from the very beginning. When did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? I started back around 2004-2005. I was a student that was looking for a way to end up turning the ideas that I had into stories, but I really had no way of doing that at the time. Um, thankfully, I'd started playing video games around about uh, a year or two before that on the PC, and there was this game that had come out called Neverwinter Nights. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's pretty popular among D&D groups. The game actually had a RPG builder as part of it that you could end up creating your own campaigns and stories in it. And I found that really interesting. So I ended up getting online and trying to find out where the rules sort of came from for building it. And I found out that Dungeons & Dragons was the basis for all like the stats, the the way that characters were built, and sort of the general storytelling world that had been created, which was Forgotten Realms. I got online and ended up looking up on Google sort of what is Dungeons & Dragons, and I ended up finding out that they'd just released the third edition a couple years before, and so I actually ended up asking my mum for the books, like the core rule books for Christmas that year. And I was surprised to find out that not only had 3rd edition come out, but 3.5 had just released, so I ended up getting a nice little surprise at Christmas time with that. How long between getting the books and actually having your first play session was it? I ended up playing uh, with my younger brother. We ended up trying to run a single-player, single-DM-style game, which... <laughs> was very difficult with the rules system for 3.5. All of the balancing issues were wrong, and because it was my first game, I didn't really understand what I was doing, which, you know, I, I don't have any uh, difficulty with running 3.5 now, but at the time it was a bit overwhelming with all of the different options and things that you can do and the way that different interactions between the rules happen. So... Probably about six months, I gave myself a little bit of time just to read through everything and sort of try to create a few characters on my own just to understand how that worked, and went and got my first dice set about six months in and convinced my younger brother to help me test out and play the game. But uh, after that, it probably wasn't a proper campaign with like a full group of players until maybe a year and a half later when I started finding people that I could game with through work colleagues, actually. There was this guy at work that said that he knew what Dungeons & Dragons was, so I asked him if he was interested in having me join in on his gaming group, and because of that, we ended up meeting like four or five people at his place one afternoon. And the thing with them was that they were all smokers, so every single time they ended up going for a break and just having a smoke, which was like every half hour, every hour. It had given me time to just go over the rules and everything and look at the books, and they wanted me to end up running games for them. And as a new DM, this was this was beyond anything I was ready for, <laughs> but it was a good testing ground for putting me through my paces and being able to come up with things on the fly. So those those breaks where they were smoking because I'm not a smoker myself, gave me the opportunity to sort of make notes, come up with ideas in my head, and really act on the fly and improvise, which has been good practice for my later gaming years. Was there an extra difficulty having gone from starting off writing scenarios for Neverwinter Nights where you could only have so many outcomes? Oh, Absolutely. I struggled to start finding a way to create worlds to begin with because the way that it's described in the books is, oh, just start small and build out or start big and go small. But I struggled to even 
visualize what a Dungeons and Dragons world really was. I didn't understand how the different races worked together or how they had animosity towards each other. So being able to sort of put all those pieces together was really difficult. But I ended up finding that there were magazines in my local newsagents, the Dragon and Dungeon magazines. So I ended up scouring all of those and getting as many of them as I could, and they were invaluable for building out this world that I had conceived of. Was it a completely homebrew world, or was it set within the Forgotten Realms? It was actually a homebrew world to start off with, but I ended up having to drop it eventually because it was just too broken and the way that the players were interacting with it wasn't fleshed out enough to be able to support the things that they were trying to do. So later on in our gaming, I ended up getting the Eberron book because it had just been released, the Eberron campaign setting. And that being as fleshed out as it was with all the different cities and the way that the races had been described and the different factions working against each other really ended up helping quite a lot. When you say the world couldn't support the actions that the players were trying to do, do you have an example of that? One of the things that they ended up trying to do is that they ended up wanting to play a evil PC campaign. This was after a few different failed starts to gaming with this group. And because they wanted to play evil PCs, I needed to end up having law enforcement or some form of discouraging them just going town to town and wiping out all of the (laughs) inhabitants of this world that I'd created. So it was difficult for me, but I think it ended up making me realise that um, maybe this group wasn't the one that I wanted to stick with for the rest of my gaming life. Um, We ended up parting ways slightly after that, and I ended up finding new groups over the years. But I still credit them with giving me the opportunity to really test the boundaries of where I could go with storylines and test my ability to improvise on the fly. With this group, did you have the opportunity to play as a player, or were you strictly in a DM role? With that group, I was strictly a DM role. A few of the players there had actually run games before, but they'd run games so often that they really just wanted to sit back and play. As a DM over the years, I've really only been a player maybe twice, and not for any long-running campaigns, maybe just as one-shots where I was able to step into the role of maybe an NPC that the players knew of and then ended up running that NPC for a single session while somebody else DM'd. Do you enjoy playing as a player or do you find it limiting at this point? (laughs) It's an interesting question because I really do enjoy being able to know where the story is going. I love the the act of crafting a story and knowing where it's going and building in all these little intricate hints to what's going to happen. But when I'm a player, I really find it difficult to be able to feel comfortable with limited knowledge. It's It really goes into the way that, as a DM, the amount of knowledge that you have versus the players is so... So disparate. I really do enjoy being a DM. Being a player is fine. I, I, I love creating characters, but when it comes down to actually playing those characters, I feel I do feel limited because I just have so much I want to be able to tell as a storyteller. And because you have that focus on telling stories, do you have difficulty now or in the past letting players fully explore a world? The stories that I end up building usually are overarching stories. They're not like really down in in the depths of like 
no, you have to go to this place because that's where the story is. It's more like world-shaping events, which is actually why some of uh, my recent campaign is very good at setting an overarching story and allowing the PCs to go where they want to. I'm actually running a pre-published adventure from 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons right now, which is Storm King's Thunder, and my players are fantastic. This is a group that I've started with just this year, and they're really enjoying the campaign right now because it's giving them the opportunity to sort of... We're going through the intro phases of it at the moment, but I know that they're going to really enjoy the later stages of the campaign where they can just go anywhere on the map that they want to. What's more important, what the players want to do or trying to get them into the setting? They've been fantastic, actually. They've they've gone along with all of the plot hooks and the storyline that is set out at the start of the campaign. So I've not really had any sort of trouble with that. The only really big change that I've had to do is I've ended up making one of the minor NPCs into a into a um what would it be it's a nemesis of the characters a little bit of a spoiler for storm king's thunder is that there's this character that got left behind in the town that is completely abandoned because it got attacked by the game is about giants so it got attacked by giants i won't tell any more than that but there's an npc that's left behind and this npc is doing a very uh, covert operation in the town so they want to be able to stay anonymous and protect their patron who's in a different town but when the PCs arrive the players end up figuring out okay, there's a NPC here who is somehow skilled enough to survive all of the changes that have turned this town into a ruin who are they? is sort of their main emphasis, but when I ended up having the players sort of... The players actually decided to bring this NPC into their group, into their confidence, and they were going around town. I decided that I wanted the NPC to be completely untrustworthy. So we ended up having a large battle with some goblins, as you do at lower levels. But... At the end of that, as all the players are split off into different areas of this town, the NPC betrays a single character, stabs him in the back, he falls to the ground, her winged serpent familiar comes up, strikes him in the face, he collapses due to the poison, and he's left bleeding out and making death saves. That, she picks up his stuff, goes, I'm going to keep this for safekeeping, and walks off, and they don't see her again for another three, four sessions after that. During this whole time, they they do save the player that got downed, but this whole time, there's this boiling rage inside of them, and it's so, so brilliant to watch that occurring. With a plot hook like that that you had designed, would you have allowed the player to fail their death saves and die? I would, actually. This is a game that's being run on Discord at the moment through chat, so I don't get to see their actual reactions to these sorts of things, but one of the things that I'd asked them about and sort of came to an agreement with right at the very start of the campaign was, okay, during the first maybe five or six sessions I'll make sure that any deaths, in quotes, deaths that occur are not permanent. We'll have a saving grace sort of, no, you do pull through at the last moment. But at the time that this betrayal occurred, the players had had maybe 10 sessions under them. They knew the stakes going in. And the other thing is, is that when this NPC betrayed them, I did show all of the dice rolls for what was happening, all of the all of the advantage that they had due to it being a surprise attack, the way in which the damage dice were rolling. It came down to a single point 
of damage from the poison of the snake that finally did the player in. And it was only due to their gurgled death cry and a perception check by other characters that they ended up getting to him in time to be able to save him. He was revived without having to make more than two death saves. So he was very grateful to the rest of the party, and that that ended up building a lot of party unity, which is still going on to this day. Do you normally show your dice rolls, or was this for the sake of showing that you weren't just being a cruel dungeon master? I usually end up showing my dice rolls most of the time. The only time that I don't end up showing the players the dice rolls is when the effects wouldn't end up influencing them, such as maybe there's some weather rolls that I want to make to be able to determine, oh, is it snowing? Is it? Is there a huge windstorm? Those sorts of things. It's not really dice information that they really need to know, so I just do that before a campaign starts or before the session starts, and the rolls that happen in-game, I show all of them. They They know where the enemies are in terms of like their bonuses they know where things are in terms of like the ac of enemies as soon as they hit like the actual number for their armor class i'll say okay that is their armor class we can we can stop guessing about whether you hit or not now if you hit this number you know that you've hit them speaking of the party's unity Could you tell us a bit about the current party that you're running through? Absolutely. I would love to do that. I have five players at the moment. They are running a variety of different characters. The way that this campaign started is that Volo's Monster Guide had come out that month. So a lot of players were really interested in playing monstrous characters. So we've got a Kenku, who is the bird-like race that can mimic any kind of sounds that it's heard. Uh, they're playing a bard, which is perfect match for that. We have a orc character uh, who is actually an outcast, and they're playing a paladin. So a bit of balancing between sort of that, I come from the wilds and I have this rage inside of me, and then they're playing a paladin who has to live up to ideals, and that's a great sort of interaction for their character. We also have a human, but that human is... they come from a military background. They ended up having to be forced out of the military, and that ended up starting their adventurer life. They're coming to terms with Maybe party unity is better than just getting all the gold that I can. <laughs> Who else have I got? I've got a, I've got a lizard folk in my party. He's, uh, he's playing a rogue character. So he's ended up choosing to have his character be sort of a lithe, sort of thin build, acrobatic, uh, lizard folk, which, if you know lizard folk, sort of works into the way that the Eberron style lizard folk are. Um, there's a couple of different race types for lizard folk in Eberron, so um, they ended up building based on some of the concepts of that, and that's been that's been fun because they're playing a very instigator sort of style where they make trouble happen. One of our biggest moments in the game right in the first few sessions, was they decided to go and attack this goblin that was hiding in a church steeple. And because the door to the steeple was too small for everybody to get through, they decided, okay, I'm just going to make a new door in the wall to the steeple. Let me just run at it. And this is a temple and steeple that had already been attacked by a large number of the stones that had been thrown by the giants. So their action of running into the wall, trying to bash it open, the dice rolls ended up being not just a failure of a roll of one, but after rolling... I usually end up rolling like percentage dice for 
there's a chance that this might happen. I had like a 10% chance that the steeple was going to end up rocking so much that it would end up collapsing. Oh, it came down. It, it came down hard. The players made all of their reflex saves. They, they ended up being fine, but they are now known as the wrecking ball of our group, which is, it's fantastic that a rogue is the wrecking ball. Finally, I also have a tiefling character. And this tiefling character is a warlock with a frost prince fey as their patron. And there's a fantastic story I'm telling sort of weaved into the campaign set just for their character where they're trying to find the pages of a journal. There's like seven pages missing. And these pages that they're trying to find are going to detail a lot about that character's background. And they ended up deciding when they were building their character that they were taken from their family or their family died or something in the background. I'm not going to go into details yet because even they don't know, but a winter wolf, which is a large, intelligent version of regular wolf, um, it even has speech capability, ended up taking this tiefling character and bringing them up in the wild. And eventually this character ended up making a pact with the fey patron that became their warlock patron, which is a character called the Frost Prince. He's all to do with the winter royal court of the fey. And so... I'm having a messenger occasionally give them hints as to where their past is, and that's tying them ever closer to trusting this Fey patron. And there's going to be some stuff way, way in the future of our campaign. It's going to end up really testing that loyalty, let's say. Is the human in the group a fighter class? He is indeed. Um, and he's a he's playing a protector style fighter, so he's got a nice big shield actually crafted by the lizard folk because lizard folk get this ability to craft mundane items out of body parts as part of like their their background and uh, abilities. So they were fighting a warg, uh, actually a couple of wargs that the goblins had brought with them to the town, and. When the player who was the human fighter, they were the one that actually got betrayed and had their, like, their sword and their shield taken from them. So they had nothing left in terms of being able to defend or fight. The lizard folk had been carrying this shield around that they really weren't using at all, crafted from the ribcage of one of these wargs. So, they ended up gifting this ribcage to the fighter, and he's been using that as part of his like protective uh, abilities in the game, and that's been that's been fun. <laughs> How did you contact the players to let them know you wanted to run this game? Uh, the players themselves are actually from a couple of different Discord servers that I'm a part of. I put out a general sort of, "Hey, is there anybody that's interested in a?" campaign that will take a couple years to finish. I got a few people back saying, yeah, that'd that'd be good. So I ended up talking to them and finding out that, yeah, these people seem alright. And one of them's a roommate, so they were already on board even before the game was going to be a thing, because they're usually involved in most of the campaigns I run. And another one's a friend from up the road, maybe about half hour up the road, so I asked them and they had a free day to be able to play, so they said, yeah, sure. And the party composition seems a bit classic. Bard, Paladin, Fighter, Rogue, Warlock. Was that something that you had tried to guide them on, or do the players have complete freedom when it comes to what class they want to run as? Some of the players actually didn't even know what kind of class they wanted to play. So I ended up guiding some of that, but most of that sort of guidance came as, okay, 
these are the spellcasting classes. You're going to want somebody that can do that. This is the healing classes. You're going to want somebody that can do that. You need a face of the party. Those sorts of things. Not, you have to play this sort of class. You have to do this. If if there was a matchup between, like, if I had both a warlock and a wizard in the party, that would have been fine, but I definitely would have been a lot stronger in encouraging them to have non-similar builds in terms of, like, their spellcasting. So I would have encouraged one to be more charms or uh, trickery and one to be the fireball-throwing kind. So you would not give a flat-out refusal to a party of, say, four rogues and a cleric. You would just try to let them know that they may run into stumbling blocks. Oh, absolutely. If if that was the actual way that the party ended up being built with, like, four rogues and a cleric, I mean, don't get me wrong, that's a terrible build. <laughs> that's a terrible party build, but it it could work. It would have changed the type of campaign I was going to run. I knew that I was wanting to run Storm King's Thunder, but that wasn't a definite. So, I don't know. If, if the party wanted to be that... I would end up speaking to them very heavily about what kind of campaign are you actually wanting here and trying to build something around that idea. If that was going to be the player like party build, who knows, I might have actually ended up doing more of a urban campaign, having them be the black ops team that goes in and deals with situations too dangerous for regular parties. That's, that seems like a great idea to me. That sounds like that'd be fun. Are you playing this game on Discord because you prefer the theater of the mind approach? Or do you normally play on something more visual like Roll20, for example? I've only been playing on Discord with this group. Up until this point, it's all been face-to-face with, like, tiles and miniatures and, like having an actual proper DM screen in front of me. So when it came time to actually end up playing Dungeons & Dragons Online, it really came down to what is available for everybody at short notice. Where can I get the most amount of players that I know of? And Discord really ended up working quite well for that. I've never actually ended up playing using Roll20, but I know that a lot of groups do. And... Maybe with a future group or maybe another campaign, we might end up moving and migrating over to Roll20. But up until this point, Discord served us really well. We've got a, um, we've got a dice spot that I've ended up putting in. We've got ways to end up sharing images just as easily as Roll20 does, where you just put a link into the chat and everybody can see that. We've also got a in-game and out-of-game different rooms on the server, so it keeps the story separate from all the banter that happens during a game. The same way that the story on the table ends up being different to the story told between players. Having been a traditional in-person dungeon master, what kind of challenges do you have going to Discord and what has actually been easier than you were thinking it would be. One of the challenges with moving to Discord has been the ability to show the players specific parts of maps and showing where the players are on those maps as part of, like, you're in this tile, this is where the enemy is, and the players can easily see, okay, these are my tactics and these are my options for this combat. One of the easier things has been the note-taking because I'm on my PC rather than on uh, just a table with some notepad and pen, I've been able to keep track of basically everything that the players have done. I've ended up saving the session logs. I've ended up being able to do all of my planning on the PC, which has been amazing. I used to take notes of what the campaign was going to be on A4 sheets of paper, really old school style, just, all right, let me draw out this map. Let me draw out all of the campaign notes. Let me draw out my ideas for NPCs, all those sorts of things were all done on paper originally. Now that I'm on my PC, I find the ability to just 
sit down, write for an hour, and I've got my next session ready. It seems like everyone who has played Dungeons and Dragons has their version of Dungeons and Dragons. You mentioned starting off in 3rd edition and 3.5, but now that you've moved over to 5th edition, do you find yourself looking back often? I have not looked back once. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that seems harsh to say. I'm, I'm sure 3.5 has a lot of support with players, but 5th edition has been outstanding in terms of how it's been playtested by so many people before it even got released. That's been, that's been so good in terms of being able to keep the game running fluidly and not having to stop and look up rules so often. I used to look up the rules so many times that I'd have to actually tell players that, I'm sorry, but if we're going to be doing grappling, just forget it. <laughs> so when we ended up moving to... I actually ended up moving through 4th edition and then 5th edition. So when I went to 4th edition, that was... I actually enjoy 4th edition way more than I did 3rd edition due to the way that it's built the same way that a computer game is. Like, I, I grew up playing computer game versions of Dungeons & Dragons, so when I finally ended up playing, I was astounded that the complexity of 3rd edition was so restrictive to new players. So 4th edition ended up being so helpful and useful in terms of being able to build characters that had fun things that they could do every single round or every single, every single encounter they had something that they felt they could contribute when we ended up moving to 5th edition, I still felt that same excitement for the players. I, f I felt like they had all of the options and the knowledge to be able to use all of those options to the best of their ability, rather than with 3rd, where if a player doesn't, say, understand, how does my sneak attack end up influencing combat? Or if, like, really, really simple things that just get obscured by how many options are thrown at the player's when they start building. I just, I really do advocate for like fourth and fifth, but sometimes I really have to push the emphasis on fourth edition isn't as bad as people say it is. Is the person playing the human fighter in your campaign a seasoned Dungeons and Dragons veteran, or are they new to the game? Uh, most of my players are actually uh, seasoned players. I've only got one player, I think, who hasn't really ended up playing much before. But, again, this has really been fortunate for me that I've got players that have been playing for a while. It's It's been quite good. The whole group has been fantastic. I can't stress that enough because they're going to end up listening to this, of course. Um, I'm going to end up forcing them to at some point. But, no, I I must say they've all taken to it like ducks to water. They've been great. I find with new players to the game, there's usually a shyness or hesitance that they have to overcome. Did you do anything to help draw them out of their shell, or were they ready to go from the moment you started narrating? Most of the players have been pretty good in terms of being able to just jump straight in, end up playing, and being able to sort of hear, have their voices heard. There's been a few times where there's been shyness, and that's understandable. Everybody's got everybody's got their own things that's going on in their world. What I've done to be able to encourage players to step out of their shell is whenever large moments or just when they when they do contribute, I try to emphasize the cool factor. So there was this moment when we were having a fight in a cave against two ogres, and the players had been fighting for basically the entire session. Right at the very end, it came down to the tiefling warlock who ended up having this lightning bolt stream, this ogre. And it turns out that the damage that they were doing was enough to kill the ogre. So the way that I described it in our out-of-game chat was, hey, hey, guess what, guess what? Killing blow, and just all caps, nice and bold, so that they knew it had happened. And what ended up happening in our in-game chat is I ended up describing it as 
all of the air that is inside of this ogre's lungs ends up superheating due to the lightning that's blasting all over them. And that superheating of the air inside of their lungs ends up exploding out the front of the ogre's chest, leaving a huge, big, gaping wound in them. It's like playing up those big moments for ends of combat or or just things where the players are contributing but they're unsure about whether they're doing enough to contribute. I like to put a marker on it and go, yes, you are doing good. This this is this is how you this is how you get involved and I hope you're enjoying it. Do you think starting off wanting to tell stories in a video game format has informed how you DM trying to make it seem more like a video game? Um I think so. I, I've ended up I've ended up taking a lot of inspiration from fighting games, to be honest. The way that sort of your Mortal Kombat like finishes or large-scale combat games end up happening where you've got these armies versus armies and then you you scroll in and look at the single individual versus a single individual in this huge mass of people. I really like to sort of pull from those sorts of ideas and it's been it's been beneficial, but I think I've suffered a little bit in terms of being able to go okay, these are my this is my story and going, oh, the the players are going to do a left turn. <laughs> Where does my story go from now? So I usually end up plotting out sort of the main thrust of the campaign, so to speak, and then anything that the players do sort of off that beaten track has been... It's been wild, but it's been fun. When you gave the approximate two-year lifespan for this game to your players... Are you planning on sticking to the uh, built-in adventures, or are you planning on just using those as a stepping-off point? I have actually really enjoyed reading through in advance the story for this campaign, so I'm hoping that the players stick to it. And thankfully, with the way that this particular adventure, Storm King's Thunder, is built, it provides a lot of opportunity for the players to make the decisions as to where they want to go. Earlier you had mentioned that you had difficulty playing as a player because you lack the foreknowledge that you have as a GM. Do you find that working out of the supplement you enjoy even more because you have even more knowledge than having to come up with it on the fly? Yeah, absolutely. I've A lot of the time when I run games, I always end up running from pre-published adventures, and then layer on top of that my own story. So it's great as a backbone for stories that I want to tell. Most of the games I run, the campaign runs as a main story, but the stories I really want to tell are the ones that involve the players and their own personal journey, which is things like their backgrounds or their struggles with who they are as an individual and that always ends up being the most interesting sort of stories for me because I don't actually know where that's going to go. And because of that, the campaigns, like the pre-built adventures, are great for just providing that background thrust and push that I need to be able to tell my own sort of consequences and stories and, and the challenges that players and their characters end up facing due to their want-to-be adventurers. What does it mean to be an adventurer? What does it mean to really be on the fringes of society, going out into these dungeons, into these wilderness places, fighting these big enemies? Do you ever have role-playing sessions where you don't even get to the adventure, where you just have a, what would be described as a filler episode? We actually had a filler episode, maybe about 10 sessions in, maybe 11 sessions in, where we wanted to sort of, we ended up having a few players absent. So I just wanted to tell a story that was sort of main story adjacent. I ended up taking the players and asking them, okay, these are a few of the different locations that will come up later in the story. 
pick one of them. And those places had NPCs that were going to end up being important. So I was like, okay, pick an NPC. And that ended up being a very fun sort of single session uh, to, to be able to run because I ended up coming up with the whole plot line for that. Um, what ended up happening is that there was a tavern slash inn owner that had all, had all of his foodstuffs for the next few months over the winter period that all been stolen by bandits. So the players gathered around him and even the tavern owner was a player. So we had a number of different things where the players were interacting as NPCs. Well, not as NPCs, but the players were interacting as these characters that they hadn't ever built or they hadn't gotten to know. So they really got to flesh out these characters that they're going to end up meeting later, which will end up being very useful for me for building that part of the campaign. It's going to end up being a lot of fun to be able to meet those characters again as the player characters. So we're almost to that point now. We've got this session that I'm going to be running today, actually. We're going to end up having the players getting to the point where they're going to meet these characters. And it's going to be very interesting to find out sort of how the NPCs that they had run previously will interact with the actual player characters. So getting ready for the session today... What exactly will you do to prepare? A lot of what I'm running today is actually the approach to this town. So I need to read through and just make sure that I understand like the travel rules, the encounter rates. I'm going to end up spending maybe 10 minutes before the campaign, uh, before the session starts, just writing out like the intro to the game for the day. Uh, I usually have a in media res recap of what was actually happening moments to the end of the last session and then where the players are at the start of the current session. So just a nice little recap because we we play once a week, but even those once a week breaks between sessions, players tend to forget. It's, It's a thing that happens. We're all human. So I like to end up just refreshing the memory and just letting them know, okay, this is where you are. You're in water deep, let's say because that's where they are right now, and you're in a week of downtime and the the holiday is coming up for the Feast of the Moon. That's that's our current session sort of intro. So I'm going to end up sort of writing that with nice flowery language. Um, I'm going to sort of describe the mood of the city and those sorts of things as the uh, Feast of the Moon ends up arriving. Um, the Feast of the Moon is a is a end-of-the-year um, event in Forgotten Realms, and it's about remembering those that have been lost in in the sort of the, the past few years, or just remembering the dead. That's sort of a um, festival. Um, so it's a bit somber, but it's going to be fun to sort of have the players interacting with that as well, because they lost an NPC during that fight, against uh, the denizens of the abandoned town. they There was this NPC called Alara Winterspell, and she was a guard, indebted, uh, not indebted, she was, she had pledged herself to the players as part of this um, mission to go rescue the villagers. And as soon as sort of the first big fight happens, I ended up rolling two criticals against her, and that really ends up knocking down an NPC guard quite a bit. She ended up getting cut in half by these orcs um, and thrown off the edge of a broken bridge into the waters below. That ended up being a very emotional event that still resonates even now. Maybe, was it, maybe like 15 sessions later, they're still still feeling that. Because I, I really made her out to be an idealist sort of a character. So... Um, Alara Winterspell will be missed, and uh, hopefully the players will sort of play that up when it comes to the Feast of the Moon. Do you ever try to keep a certain atmosphere to the games, like keeping somber times somber? 
I really like to let the players dictate that sort of a thing. Um, if it's sort of inappropriate, I will, I will end up discouraging it. But most of the time, the players have all been very mature about the way that they're playing, um, the way that they end up uh, interacting, not just amongst themselves, but towards the game world in general. They've been, they've been very good about that. So I've not really had any problems with it. If a new GM was wanting to get started with a group that was new to role-playing, would you suggest they start with 5th edition? And if so, what would you have them start with in terms of adventure? 5th edition as a starting point. It's not a bad option. It, it's, it's really not a bad option in terms of starting. I might suggest a, a different game entirely to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, one of your less rules heavy sort of role playing games. Um, I'm thinking maybe, um, Fiasco or something like that. But Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition is probably the best starting place at the moment for I want to play Dungeons and Dragons. This, this is what I want to do. From there, they can sort of go to the older editions or Pathfinder, which, huh, don't get me started on the rules complications for Pathfinder. I, I hate it more than 3.5, but large amounts of players are playing in Pathfinder, so I need to know those rules <laughs> just in case I end up running like one shots or something. So, yeah. So, fifth edition as a starting point. I'd probably recommend, I probably wouldn't recommend any of the main books. In terms of the adventures, um, except for the Tales of the Yawning Portal, the the first adventure in that is actually a updated three point five uh, adventure or, or three point oh one of those um, adventure, and I think it's the Forge of Fury or it's the Sunless Citadel, one of those ones. The, yeah, the Sunless Citadel. That's an update of a two thousand adventure. And that's a really fun and interesting adventure for the players. Minds of Fandelver, which is from the starter kit, is also good, but it assumes a lot of it assumes a lot of the players' actions for them, rather than allowing them to sort of explore at their own pace. I really, I really do like the Sunless Citadel in terms of the way that it's built and the way that it has this mystery and intrigue as to what is actually happening in this citadel that's at the base of this huge uh, canyon. And if you were a player in your own campaign, what class and race would you want to be? <laughs> I have a love for Warforged. I would want to play a nice big beefy Warforged and be able to just bash aside enemies with my fists. That that'd be a lot of fun for me, so I think I think that's what I would play. Uh, I actually end up I have a Tumblr, which is warforged.tumblr.com. So I I would encourage people to look at all of the images and stuff that I've reblogged on there. But I love it so much that I snapped up that URL as soon as I could. We're going to start wrapping up. But before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernard Pivo. What is your favorite word? Uh, I've been thinking about this all week because I knew it was going to come up. I have a few, but I think, I think my favorite is adventure. What is your least favorite word? Spider. I hate spiders so much. And even the the word makes me go <laughs> and shudder because it brings to mind all of the all of the crawly legs and stuff. So no, <laughs> has that affected the creatures that your players will encounter in your adventures? They will not be encountering spiders. Correct. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think being able to just sit back and reflect on adventures past really makes me go, oh, I'm looking forward to being able to play again. 
let's let's start writing up the next one. What turns you off? Arguing amongst players because there's no need for it. We we can all sort of get to a point where we want to play a fun game. We don't need to argue about things. What about arguing between characters? Uh, I've actually allowed a little bit of arguing between characters. As long as it doesn't go too far and come outside of the game into real life, I'm actually alright with a, a little bit of disagreement between characters. It ends up being a bit more flavoursome for, for the story. After a session, do you do any decompression to help step away from the fantasy and reality? We usually end up just recapping, sort of just going, eh, that was a lot of fun, and then stretching, and then I usually end up just watching a few YouTube videos of uh, people that I really enjoy, just to sort of get my mind out of that headspace. And yeah, it's 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 not maybe the not maybe the most exciting way to decompress, but it it certainly helps me relax after a four hour session. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Uh there's maybe probably only one which is the most useful and the most exciting to hear from them, which is of course fuck. <laughs> just in in that tone as well. Just going, oh god, we know what's coming. Please don't. No, no, no. Do you remember the last thing to happen in your campaign that got that reaction? Maybe when one of the players ended up getting downed by one of the ogres. Um, this character is the lizardfolk rogue. He tends to get knocked down and into a death state quite a lot. I'm probably going to have to end up incorporating some kind of scars that he ends up taking from that. But every single time it happens, everybody just starts panicking, going, no, don't let him die. It's it's too many times we've brought him back. Please don't. What sound or noise do you love? Dice rolling on a wooden table. There, there's nothing quite like hearing that clatter of many dice being rolled and just, yeah. What sound or noise do you hate? <sighs> Maybe, <laughs> I do want to say a chainsaw, which we've been hearing throughout this sort of talk between you and I, but um, I'd probably say that the sound I like the least is a sigh of frustration, because it means that I'm not doing something right as a DM. I want to be able to make sure everybody has a fun time, and just that that sigh, that, you know the one that goes sort of like, ah. That, that right after makes, a missed roll? Yeah, after a missed roll, or or if if something just isn't going the player's way, it just makes me go, I need to do something to counteract that. What game system would you like to attempt? I'd actually love to run a game for Paranoia. It's a game where there is this overarching computer system running an entire complex, and it's zany, and it's fun, and there's a lot of paranoia between players, and will the computer find out that I'm a mutant and a a communist, and all of these sorts of things that the computer absolutely hates, and every single player is playing a character that is a mutant and a communist, so they want to betray each other as well, and there's a lot of fun between that sort of thing. Um, I would love to attempt to run a game of that. I've actually got the books sitting on my shelf right now and I'm looking at them and I might read them after this talk with you so that I can end up reminding myself why I want to run it. What game system would you not like to attempt? I know this has come up in one of your previous talks. I do not want to run Fatal. Fatal just is an absolute atrocious nightmare that I don't want anything to do with. I've looked at I've looked at the book. I I I know the problems with it. And the problems with it are enough to make me go, no. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? Let's do another one. And finally, if you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. 
I think it would have to be. Uh, oh, I'm I'm struggling with that one. But maybe Margaret Thatcher would be a really amusing person to see sneeze, just because she's so straight laced. Aside from warforge.tumblr.com, is there anywhere that the insiders can follow you? And is there anything you'd like to plug? You can follow me on at Real Pseudomuse on uh, Twitter. I'm on there infrequently, but enough to be able to sort of check to see if I have notifications or anything. Um, I also link through that to my personal Tumblr, which is pseudomuse.tumblr.com. I also would like to plug a individual on YouTube that I really enjoy due to the way that they run games on PC for video games. Um, and the main one that they run it for is Armor 3. Armor 3 is this military simulation game where it ended up being modded quite a lot by players. Um, it ended up creating things like DayZ and inspiring games like uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. It's a military simulation game where you can have large groups of players versus um, NPC-type uh, enemies. But the person that I'm really interested in that runs what is called Zeus Mode. Zeus Mode is this plugin that you can sit on top of Armor 3 where you can act as almost a DM for the, for the games for players. And you can drop in like scenarios and you can build out uh, military bases and things. And I think he uses a lot of um, similar skills to DMs, but he probably isn't even aware of Dungeons & Dragons as an actual thing. I just enjoy watching him because of that sort of familiarity between the experience. So if you want to go onto YouTube and look up Luton, L-U-E-T-I-N-09. Luton09 is a fantastic YouTuber that I I don't think enough people know about. And he also does uh, full streams on Twitch as well. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. You can follow the show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, just send a message. As far as I'm concerned, every dungeon or game master has a story to tell and a story worth telling. Inside the Master's Studio is an Audio Entropy original. You can head over to AudioEntropy.com to listen to more podcasts like Teenagers with Attitude, a show where a bunch of grown adults sit around discussing teens in tightly colored clothing fighting monsters, War and Beast, a Beast Wars rewatch. Also, make sure to check out All My Fantasy Children on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash allmyfantasychildren. There'll be an ad at the end of this podcast to let you know more, but the most recent episode... Falcon Vale, The Light of Ignatius, was built around the prompts A bold fool who goes off adventuring, armed only with a magical lantern that peels away lies, and A noir-style detective in a high-fantasy setting. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, a role-playing group with a stable schedule is hard to come by, and stories don't always get the ending they deserve. So enjoy the journey. Let your party stop once in a while to roll nature to smell the roses.
Did you love writing the backstory for your tabletop game characters just as much as the adventure? Ooh, yes I do. How about creating fun, kick-ass, and inclusive characters? Oh, I like that. If you answered yes, then check out All My Fantasy Children, a tabletop character creation podcast hosted by me, Aaron Catano, and my best friend, Jeff Stormer. How cute. Together, with our powers combined, we create a new character every single week with the help of listener-submitted prompts and a variety of cool tabletop games. But where can I find it? Find All My Fantasy Children on SoundCloud, iTunes, Android Play, and on Twitter at AMFC underscore podcast.